Welcome to this month's Drinking on the Last Frontier. I'm your host, Bill Howell, here on listener-supported public radio for the Central Kenai Peninsula, KDLL 91.9 FM, Kenai Soldatna. As always, thanks to Recess Duty for playing us in with our theme song. Uh, We've got a lot of great interviews for you this month, and let's just get started. Up first, as always, Beer News. The 2023 Alaska Craft Brew and Barley Wine Festival will be coming back to the Denina Center in Anchorage on the 27th and 28th of January. There will be three sessions from 6 to 10 p.m. on Friday and Saturday evenings and an afternoon session from noon to 4 p.m. on Saturday. General admission tickets for any session are $65, which includes 15 sample tickets. There are also VIP tickets available for $115 each. VIP ticket holders receive premium access to the general session. A VIP ticket includes VIP entrance, no waiting in line, one growler and one food voucher, and 15 sample tickets. Only 300 VIP tickets are available. Tickets are on sale now. Visit www.alaskacraftbrewandbarleywine.com to purchase tickets and for more information. On December 21st, Glacier Brewhouse in Anchorage wrapped up its 22nd annual 12 Days of Barley Wine celebration. On December 10th, King Street Brewing held its annual roasted chestnut party at the brewery. Besides the chestnuts, there was mulled cider, an outdoor fire, and hot chocolate for the kids. That's it for this month's beer news. Up next, we've got an interview with Jake Walgenbach of Naptown Brewing in Sterling. Yep, you heard that right. Naptown Brewing in Sterling. Details to follow. It's pick-click give time for Alaskans. When you file for the Alaska Permanent Fund dividend, you can support your favorite nonprofit organizations. Do you value public radio? Donations help KDLL provide the news, features, and entertainment programming you trust from around the world and right here at home. Apply for your dividend at pfd.alaska.gov by March 31st. And pick, click, give to help your favorite organizations. Thanks. Jake Walgenbach of Naptown Brewing in Sterling. Everybody has been very anxious and eager to get the deets on uh, what's going on. So, uh, Jake, how are you doing? Thanks for talking to us this morning. Doing well, Bill. Thanks for having me. We've been talking about this for a while, so I'm glad we finally (laughs) got the chance to do it. Okay. So, first up, you know, the $64,000 question, where are you in the process of uh, getting your doors open and selling beer to the public? 
we're, we're probably a couple months away from the tap room it's, itself opening bill um in, in the meantime here soon we hope hope to add a uh, option locally which would be selling uh crowler cans to a, a local store here so have you got a store identified yet it's not ready to, to be disclosed yet, but okay. it's in the works. All right. Well, we'll keep an eye on your Facebook page. Let's do some details. What's your background? Are you a home brewer or you have any commercial experience? How'd you end up in this crazy business? Sure. Like a lot of the, uh, you know, the commercial brewers out there, it started with a, a home brew kit that was gifted to me, um, in this case by my wife, about 10, 12 years ago. And I uh, started off doing a couple extract batches and Pretty soon, I wanted to get deeper into it. I did a few partial mashes, I think, and then went right into all grain. So I did that for, yeah, it's it probably just under 12 years, I guess. And in the meantime, I have uh, I work shift work in the oil field. And uh, at one point, I, I w- went and worked with Frank Cassick and learned the, the commercial side of brewing, which was uh, very beneficial, laid a good foundation for me as a, as a brewer making the transition. And then... Uh, my wife, uh, she's been going through optometry school, traveling around the state. So I got to do a lot of different brewers across, you know, from Colorado to, to Oregon, some of the, the craft uh, beer meccas. So it's been pretty helpful. So why don't you describe your uh, your operation there? I mean, tell us about your brew house. How big is it? What's your tankage look like? Yeah, sure. So we're uh, we're doing everything uh, out of pocket, all the work ourselves, uh, and converting a, this uh, log building into a commercial brewery. It's, it's quite an undertaking. With that, we're starting on our pilot system, our one barrel, which we will eventually someday when we convert to bigger system, still keep to, you know, of course, style and recipes and experiment with uh, new recipes. So we're brewing on the one barrel. Obviously, we, you know, we have our fermentation tanks, but we transfer to bright tanks, which are hooked up to our taps. And we do a little bit of kegging, but pretty tough on a one barrel. Yeah, you're not going to get much out of a, a one barrel batch. How many taps do you plan to have on when you get your tap room open well we're hoping for you know around five or six of our flagships you know the option of doing some special taps if you will yeah it'll be a struggle you know to get close to 10 on a one barrel but we'll try to get at least you know half that so you mentioned your flagships have you already got some particular beers beer styles scoped out that you're going to offer Yep, we sure do. So we're focusing on ales right now. Eventually we'll get into lagering, but uh, I've got quite a few options for ales. Flagships being blonde, uh, I've got a red. We do have a, a scotch, a double IPA, triple IPA. Uh, I like the, the bigger, heavier beers, so I'm often trying to create big recipes, but my partners remember to scale me back because not everybody can drink a 10% triple IPA. I'm looking forward to trying your scotch. That's always one of my uh, styles that I have a big weakness for. Do you have any other, uh, you know, these are the kind of beers you want to brew? Yeah, definitely like, uh, you know, I like malt forward beers. Um, I also like, you know, the hoppier, the the bigger the IBUs, you know, the better for me. I understand not everybody, you know, ha- you either have a love or hate relationship with an IPA. So we definitely have, uh, you know, my my blondes, of course, will probably come into play. We'll We'll try to have a little bit to appease everybody. The taste for craft beer is very, uh, very unique to some individuals. Yeah, you can't hardly not have an IPA these days. You, that seems nope. to be the de rigueur if you're going to have a brewery. So have you come up with any names for your beers? Are you going you gonna to go with catchy names? Or are you going to be like uh, generic, yeah. it's a blonde, it's a red, it's a this? We, we definitely like our names for sure at Naptown, so... 
Yeah, we, we do have names. We'll wait till, till we're open to, to reveal them, but uh, we have several different strategies of coming up with them, but uh, the names definitely mean a lot to us. Okay. So how are you planning to package? Obviously, once you get your tap room open, you'll be selling growlers, and you said you're going to be selling crowlers to the local packaging place. Is that kind of, is that kind of the model you're going to go with, crowlers and growlers? Yeah, for now, uh, crowlers especially, um, you know, once you start getting in larger quantities over that, it becomes uh, you know, less cost efficient for, for such a small system. Uh, but we'll definitely have our crowlers. We'll have, uh, you know, a display fridge there at the tap room that there'll be to-go options. And, and also, you know, we, we can we can fill them at the, the bar, too. I realize it's really early to be asking this, but have you got any, like, unique special stuff planned? Are you going to get some barrels and do barrel aging? Do you have any plans, I should say, at this point yeah. to do anything off the wall, unique, different, that kind of thing? Oh, absolutely. You know, that's kind of the basis for buying the one barrel system. Always going to be using it for, you know, funky stuff. I want to get a barrel age program going commercially pretty soon. I'll probably wait till, you know, we get open and get the uh, the system and the whole process dialed in before I get into that. But definitely out there looking for options for whiskey barrels and Chardonnay barrels and things like that. All right. So now put your uh, put your get your crystal ball out and tell me. Where do you want to be in five years, and where do you think you want to be in 10 years? You know, in, in five years, we, we hope to be on, on a big system, right? I want to be open every, every day of the week. So, you know, whether that's a 10 or a 20 barrel, um, that'll be our next step uh, with a, a separate building uh, feeding the current tap room that we have. And, you know, down the road, we, you know, adding tankage, adding, you know, cool little projects like we were talking about earlier. And, uh, we'll we'll see where it takes us. Okay, so that's still your that's kind of like your your vision right now is build because I remember that's what you told me a while back was your original idea was you want to build a separate building adjacent to your current one and put your production brewery in there, right? Yep, that that's correct. Yeah, we have the land already. So okay, that's and when you step. and when you build that place, are you going to put plan to put in a canning line or bottling or? Yeah. Canning? We'll definitely start with, with canning. Um, I, I'm a big fan of the four-pack 16-ouncers. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, definitely definitely want to have more you know options to go for folks. That seems to be the direction that pretty much everybody is moving in these days is, you know. I think so. They're going straight to cans without, uh, without dealing with bottles. But it's so much more convenient. Yeah, well, much more practical up here. Weight considerations and all that sort of, of stuff. Okay. What do you like the most about being a brewer and what do you like the least? You know, the, the most I like is probably building, building recipes and, you know, then getting the opportunity to tweak them, you know, um, perfect them, sharing them with families, friends. Um, I can't wait to share it with the public, you know, brewing for our own label. has been very, you know, encouraging for us. Uh, very exciting. I get to brew with my sister. She's my assistant brewer she started earlier this year learning so she's a big help she's one of the partners and you know we're a family run business it's my wife and i my sister and her husband and then uh, one of our best friends so getting the opportunity to do something that we love together and offer to the public is you know something we were it meant a lot to us cool so what do you hate hate man <laughs> i know hate's well, a strong word what do you like the least yeah. what do i like the least <laughs> Um, 
probably you know any downtime in the, in the brewery especially in preparation for opening as we are right now you know just if i have a tank that's not filled or a pump that's not running you know we i just i want to be working i want to keep dialing things in and perfecting beers and seeing you know seeing what happens for me it's always the cleaning I, I knew you were going to say that. Yeah, well, you know, that's what they say. But, you know, you, guys, you know, breweries spend like 90% of your time cleaning, it seems yeah. to me. It's always clean something, they clean this, clean that keg, clean the floor, clean this, mm-hmm. clean, you know, cleanliness is next to godliness when it comes to brewing. So, you know, there's yeah, a lot of cleaning involved. It, it's all cleaning, Bill. It, <laughs> it's all cleaning. But, you know, I just, it's different. It's not, it's not the feeling you get when you're, you know, cleaning your kitchen or or whatever it is. I mean, it's when you're doing it for something that you love, yeah. uh, it, it doesn't, it, it feels more rewarding, I guess. <laughs> okay. It's all cleaning. Though. I guess that's why I'm not a commercial brewer. I don't get that much reward <laughs> out of all that cleaning. So I'd much rather be, I'd much rather be sitting out in the front, drinking the beer and watching you clean. So it's like, Hey, hey, hey go, Jay, go. Well, I like cleaning with the beer in hand. So <laughs> well, that's, that's my style. Maybe that's what it is. Yeah. Beer makes everything go better. <laughs> okay. Well, hey, what else would you like to tell the public? You know, free open form here. What do you want to say to everybody about NapTown? You know, I, I just I, I just want to thank the the community for the support we've gotten. It's just it's been overwhelming. You know, both public and uh, you know b- businesses out there in the public as well that have just showed support. And I just want to I just want to thank everybody. We can't wait to you know get all your faces in the, the tap room and you know continue conversations over a beer and. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I think it's just our gratitude. We want to get out there, Bill. All righty. Well, hey, you've got my gratitude for coming on the show here and talking to everybody. Uh, we look forward to you being open here early in the new year and uh, being able to uh, crash on in and and have a brew and chat, like you say, in the tap room with beer in hand. Awesome, Bill. Yeah, thanks again for having me. I can't wait to see you. All righty. Thanks for being on. There is nothing worse than driving Turnigan Pass with no cell service and nothing to listen to. But now you can download your favorite KTLL programs as podcasts to take with you wherever you go, whether you're hiking the Chugach, skiing in the Refuge, or just driving through a dead zone. Kenai Convo, The Evening News, Growing a Greener Kenai, and Drinking on the Last Frontier are all available on Apple Podcasts. Or visit the podcast page on kdll.org. Hello and welcome back to Drink You on the Last Frontier. I'm your host, Bill Howell, here on KDLL 91.9 FM Kenai Soldatna. In this month's feature presentation, we'll be talking about the history of aging beer. This is the time of year when breweries all across Alaska typically release their strong barrel-aged beers. But giving beer time to mature is nothing new. And in centuries past, it wasn't done by halves. While a modern lager might spend a few weeks aging and a barrel-aged ale typically sits a couple of years in wood, once upon a time, beers could mature for decades. First, a little explanation of old British brewing terminology is in order. In the 18th and 19th centuries, ale in Britain was conditioned in two ways. It could be sold either mild, that is young, usually no more than a week or two after being racked into barrels, or stock, aged for months or even years before sale. 
nor was aging limited to commercial breweries. Until the middle of the 19th century, much of the beer in Britain was produced by domestic brewers, that is, brewed in a residence for the use of the family, servants, and staff. Unburdened by commercial considerations, the household brewer could afford to let beer mature for what appears today a ridiculous length of time. This all began to change at the end of the 19th century. A witness before a parliamentary committee in 1899 testified as follows. The taste for fresh ales, as against stock ales, set in some 20 years or more ago, and it has been steadily progressive without any tendency to reversion. And even within the past few years, I have known brewers who previously brewed their pale ales on stock principles, abandoned stock beer brewing, and have found that the ales brewed on running ale lines have given greater satisfaction. Still, a few long-aged beers did struggle on into the 20th century, maintaining an ancient tradition. Over the centuries, many types of long-aged beer were produced in Britain, both privately and commercially. Here are four different examples. The first example is March or October beer. Before 1850, when all country households of any importance still brewed their own beer, the local gentry was extremely proud of their special October beer. Throughout the year, household brewers made mild ales, drunk fresh, for day-to-day -day use. But once or twice a year, they made something stronger, a beer reserved for special occasions and honored guests. These strong beers were mostly made when the ambient temperature was best for brewing, either March or October, hence the names March beer and October beer. Many preferred October on account of the several months of cool weather that followed. The theory behind brewing in October went like this. At the time of brewing, the temperature would be perfect for the initial fermentation. As the weather became colder, the fermentation would slow and eventually stop. When the warmer spring weather arrived, it woke up the yeast and a secondary fermentation began to complete the job. But the beer still wasn't ready to be drunk. It was left until at least September before being tapped. A longer wait was recommended for those who could keep their patience. Without the monetary constraints of commercial brewers, domestic brewers could afford to leave their beer to mature for years. Some wouldn't touch their October beer at less than three years old. Others boasted of beer kept five or even ten years, so strong that it could only be safely consumed by the wine glass. A second example was the stock pale ale. Today's drinkers want their IPA as fresh as possible, preferably grabbed directly from the bottling or kegging line and consumed on the spot. Victorian Brits had different expectations. The discerning IPA drinker wanted a properly matured beer, something like bass. Bass's method of maturing pale ale sounds utterly crazy, but is confirmed by several independent sources. It received no careful curation in a cool cellar. After being racked into casks, it was piled up in the brewery yard, open to the elements, with only a little wetted straw in the warmest weather as protection. After a year of this brutal treatment, it was deemed ready to be shipped to India, toughened enough during its time in the yard to survive the long trip, and helped by Britannomyces, which stripped everything fermentable that an infecting bacteria might feed on. When East India Company officials and army officers got their hands on a bottle of bass, the beer inside was 18 months old. Drinkers back in Britain had to make do with a version six months younger. A few years ago, Zach Henry and I produced a recreation of this beer at St. Elias Brewing. 
While we didn't leave the beer outside for a year, the climate in Alaska is just a bit more brutal than that of England. We did age it for over a year in a wooden barrel, heavily dosed with Britannomyces. The result was truly amazing, unlike almost any other beer I've ever tasted. It was also so far removed from what today's beer drinker expects that almost no one else would drink it. But for those few of us who really love well-aged beer, it was heaven. A third example of aged beers is Russian stouts. Originally brewed for Catherine the Great's court, Russian stout was always given time to mature properly. During the 19th century, aging a strong stout for over a year or two wouldn't have been out of the ordinary. Even in the 1930s, Barclay Perkins Brewery's advertisements still boasted a minimum of two years aging in wooden vats at a time when such long aging had become a real rarity. The Russian stout's secondary conditioning with Britannomyces couldn't be rushed. The wild yeast slowly chewed its way through the less fermentable sugars, dropping the racking gravity from 10.34 to a final gravity of 10.24, and in the process, boosting the alcohol by volume from 9% to 10.5%. Aging didn't end with bottling. With live Britannomyces still present, Russian stout had excellent protection against oxidation, not just surviving, but improving over decades. Bottles over 25 years old have been found to be in excellent condition when finally consumed. A final aged beer example would be so-called maturity ales. His heir coming of age was an opportunity for a landowner to show off by entertaining hundreds or even thousands of guests. Oxen and sheep would be slaughtered and roasted for the poor, while the higher orders would feast magnificently in the main house. Beer was central to the celebrations, but not just any beer. At the heir's birth, a special strong brew was made in the country house's brewery, using large quantities of the very best ingredients. It was then laid down in a cellar and forgotten, to be drunk when the heir turned 21. Now that's what I call patience. Guests appreciated the time and effort spent brewing this very special beer. The following is from an 1839 edition of the Staffordshire Advertiser. The poor of the neighborhood, upward of 4,000 in number, were liberally entertained with old English fare under an extensive and splendid marquee in the park. There was an abundant supply of nut-brown ale, some famous stuff which many of the partakers declared was far preferable to champagne. Majority ales were usually brewed domestically. Surprisingly, though, the tradition was practiced at one large Edinburgh brewer, William Younger, even continuing into the 20th century. In this case, it wasn't just a privilege reserved for the Younger family heir, but rather for all members of the family. At every birth, a miniature brew of majority ale was produced in the brewery and carefully stored to be drunk 21 years later. Sadly, Aging beer fell out of fashion towards the end of the 1800s, with just a handful of beers like Russian Stout clinging on. Only in the past 25 years has a new generation of brewers rediscovered the delights a patiently matured beer can offer and revived a centuries-old tradition. So keep an eye out for the many barrel-aged brews being released during this holiday season. Up next, we'll have an interview with Sassen Mosassanen, the chairman of Denali Brewing Company. This is Drinking on the Last Frontier, KDLL 91.9 FM, Kenai Soldatna.
Looking for a new beginning? Kenai Peninsula College may appear small, but offers more than you might realize. Earn a certificate, two-year degree, or even a four-year degree without leaving your hometown. Small class sizes allow students to receive one-on-one help from instructors who are invested in their success. Find your place at KPC, here to help you reach your goals. Registration is open for spring semester, 907-262-0330 for more information. Sasan, how are you doing today, sir? Bill, I'm doing great. Thanks. Hey, thank Hope you. You're doing for, well. I'm doing well. Thank you for taking the time to uh, out of your busy day to talk with us. Um, so, bring us up to speed. How are things up in Talkeetna? How did you guys weather COVID? You know, I don't think we've talked since then. So, uh, you know, how bad was it for you guys? Gosh, it's um, that's a that's a lot of questions. <laughs> So I, I guess if you go back to 2020 and also uh, it, it, prior to jumping on this call, we realized that it had been a while since we'd caught up with each other. A couple things that are noteworthy since we last spoke is Denali Brewing has kind of transitioned and done a couple new innovations. One is getting into the winery world wave. We had been making meads and ciders since 2016. And in that same year, we also got our distillery license. So when COVID happened in 2020, we were incredibly fortunate to be able to have the ability to run our distillery to produce hand sanitizer. And we were, you know, really, we're a very tight group of folks here um, living obviously in the community of Talkeetna and and we were able to just kind of put our heads down, hunker hard and grateful for the fact that we were uh, deemed an essential service business. So we had the fortune of staying open and what we did was even though um, a tremendous amount of our production was going into draft beer and, and going into on-premise keg sales and, and as you know that all just evaporated more or less over the course of a four or five weeks. We took that energy that was going into that and, and really focused into distillery operations and uh, to kind of continuing making packaged and also making hand sanitizer. And we were so fortunate on both of those fronts. The fact, you know, there's a lot of really amazing, fantastic breweries in our great state that don't have packaging equipment their their tasting room and they're they're going directly to the consumer um, in that regards and I, I suspect some of those folks might have had greater challenge weathering the storm so we were we were able to keep our team employed we we had to pivot quite a bit really quickly but we were able to do that and I you know, when you experience challenging things and and have obstacles and, and things to overcome, it really tests the quality of who you are and, and the type of people you are. And, you know, in the challenges that were getting thrown our way, we were just really incredibly proud of the, the folks that worked here. They continued to show up they put their heads down and work really well as a team and it, it wasn't really clear right because now we have a little more clarity in hindsight but 
at the time we didn't know what was a right decision or a wrong decision and there was a lot of noise surrounding the the politics and the optics of whether we should be open or not and um i felt like you know regardless of what we were doing to make products that we could be proud of that could help contribute to providing service to the community we worked well as a team and that that was really heartwarming to see that so in terms of how was COVID and and what did it do i think it 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 kind of had a cohesive effect for us internally and um it you know even though it was very difficult it it really makes me proud of the folks we get to work alongside and also the fact that we were able to package and continue selling our products and we were donating a tremendous amount of hand sanitizer to you know the local clinics and stuff like that so it was i'm I'm glad we're continuing to move past COVID. I, i'm not sure if i can make the statement that we're fully through it we're still experiencing supply chain issues that are starting to diminish but there's a tremendous amount of inflation that's going on and that's been pretty difficult to stay on top of so i feel like covid and covid related issues we're we're still not entirely through it at least kind of from my perspective but i'm starting to see the light at the end of the tunnel and it, it doesn't feel like the light at the end of the tunnel is a train coming our way. It's, it's, it's actually starting to feel like, you know, we, we might actually be getting some daylight here. Well, that's great about you. I had never occurred to me that you guys could put your distilling plant to use in that way. But that's great because I, I can remember that was quite an issue at one point. We were buying it for our farmer's market and the prices that hand sanitizers are going for were pretty amazing. <laughs> So let's talk about your distilling operation. You know, you guys have been in business long enough, right? You've got a whiskey out by now, right? Three years is minimum for the whiskey, but you guys have been doing it for longer than that. So there's a, what, what all spirits are you offering? Well, yeah, you're right. Our distillery started in, in 2016. And, you know, as most distilleries need to, you know, and, and obviously whiskey and, and making barrel-aged products is where our passion lies. But we did come out of the gates and we had um, a gin that we were able to sell right away. And we also had a vodka that we were able to sell right away. And then, interestingly enough, one of the very, very first products that was kind of a personal issue for me was developing a spirit that could capture the essence of hops kind of coming at it from a a brewery background hops are obviously you know one of the four mission critical ingredients that we have at our disposal to work with and 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 i wanted to see if we could we could create a spirit that captured the aromatic components of hops without making a bitter spirit and so very early on we developed a product that um, we call hop shine and it's it's not you know the term shine could refer to the fact that it's a whiskey it's 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 actually not a, a whiskey it's probably more closely related to a gin in the sense that it's a botanical spirit and that was year one we we came out of the gates with those three different spirits 
so that we can kind of keep the light uh, lights on and keep things going. And, you know, vodka and gin are, are great spirits. We're excited to have had them in the portfolio. But one of the stories that I really like to share about our distillery is the fact that this hop shine was is a project that I probably failed at more than at any other product that we have gone to market with. And I'd say prior to being able to release anything, we probably had 13, 14 different stabs at trying to come up with a spirit that achieved that aromatic component without being bitter. And so when we did develop the hop shine, it was, you know, as most distilleries do when they come up with kind of an innovation, they try to come up with a cocktail that they can feature that in and then they can show up the bartenders and, and all the people out in the market, hey, this is how this spirit needs to get used. And so we, you know, I sat down, came up with a blueberry mojito recipe. And, uh, you know, as you might know, a mojito is traditionally made with rum. Mm -hmm. And we had been making rum and we have just released our first rum but at the time we didn't. And, and so this hop shine was used in the blueberry mojito recipe. And it, it just, interestingly enough, it wasn't anything that we thought was done other than to demonstrate how this spirit could be used in a cocktail. But interestingly enough, the, the, the spirit became second to the cocktail. And we realized that there was a tremendous demand for the actual cocktail and so we you know we started batching these cocktails and it started to take off it, it really wasn't something that we expected to happen but we would release a batch and in, and in a very very short amount of time you know would sell out of our tasting room really really quickly and we finally got to the point where we had the confidence to start canning it and in that regards it started to get our distillery into the ready-to-drink cocktail world. And so while that all this process that I'm describing to you was taking place, it was kind of an evolution of almost four years to get to that point. And so now we're kind of fast forward from 2016 to, you know, right around COVID, where we are actually packaging into cans, you know, our blueberry mojito, and the customers are really enjoying that experience of, of having a cocktail that would be very, very similar to what it would be like if you went to your local bar and had, a, you know, one of your favorite bartenders make you a cocktail. And they were at home and not able to go to the bar. So it turned out to be kind of a culmination of some fortuity, you know, being yeah. at the right place at the right time. Serendipity. Yeah, and I think it, it should be recognized that there was really no foresight or uh, intelligence to it, but we certainly had something we were proud and excited to share with folks, and people received it really well. And now we have a whole line of ready-to-drink cocktails. Kind of one of my most favorite is one that we just released right now, which is a strawberry basil smash. And we have a you know mule that we do, and we have a, a gin spritzer, so there's a handful of cocktails that have started to kind of fill in that portfolio. 
Let me ask you, let me ask you a question about that, because I was just remembering a news story I read a couple of months ago that there was some concern that you guys were not going to be allowed to sell kegged cocktails to bars because it wasn't an approved size from the ATF. I'm remembering that incorrect. No, you're remembering it correctly. I remember the, the state board said that's not our business. We don't care. Yeah, it was it was really a, this is very recent. This, as you mentioned, it, we've just kind of come out of this period where it was a, a pretty incredible wild roller coaster ride of what is going to happen here. So it's entirely correct. You know, we had done our homework. So I just want to make it clear it wasn't that we can plead ignorance and pretend like we didn't know what the speed limit was. We we just legitimately had the interpretation that uh, TTB or, or the modern day alcohol, tobacco and firearms, the federal regulatory agency that manages all things alcohol related, in, including beer and wine. So we, we had done our homework and had taken the interpretation that batching cocktails into kegs was permissible. And there were some concerns that were raised with the state of Alaska as to whether this was permissible on a local level. And so Alaska and AMCO did their kind of regulatory, statutory research to see what their opinion would be on the matter and work really closely with us. You know, I I think it, it should be noted that our relationship with AMCO was incredibly collaborative and supportive. At, at no point did we feel like there was any level of antagonism. We worked really well with them. And w- as we came out of the tail end of that process, the AMCO board and, and staff basically put out, uh, you know, an advisory notice saying, hey, this is this is not our jurisdiction and we don't really concern ourselves with package sizes. So, you know, if this is something you're interested in doing, uh, carry on. Hmm. So we, you know, we put our head back down, went after it. Hmm. And, and soon enough, uh, some of the same media that you were referring to triggered, you know, the attention of TTB and, and they put a phone call out to us and asked us what we were doing. And we also had, you know, a very, good working relationship with them. This wasn't a situation in which they wanted to bring the hammer down. It was, what are you doing and what can we do to make sure we're all on the same page? So we gave them our interpretation of the CFRs or the federal statutes that govern container sizes. And, you know, we had a couple back and forths and they said, okay, we we totally understand why you think what you do, because our rules are convoluted. Mm -hmm. They're not very clear. But just so that you know, historical precedent has indicated to us that batching cocktails into kegs is not a permissible format to move into. And we, you know, we understand that this is a portion of your business. So we're just going to ask you to stop whatever's out in the market. Let it be. So, you know, if there's people who are still serving mojito on draft, no problem. We're not concerned about that. We just don't want this practice to continue. And, you know, I have a lot of kind of experience working with the state and have had a tremendous amount of success working with the state to kind of make clarifications on on statute on the Alaska side and had a lot of really positive outcomes in general for the industry in those in those engagements. 
But when it came to the feds, we just weren't going to go there. And to be honest, I feel like if we had a half million dollars to throw at this, we potentially could have argued with them about their position and Mm -hmm. potentially come out victorious. But, you know, we, for the sake of maintaining a good relationship and, and trying to pick and choose our battles, we gently backed away. And, and it is true. We're no longer packaging any of our cocktails into kegs. Yeah, you really don't want to get in a fight with the people that have lawyers on staff and print money. So it's kind of and you have to go into their courts. So it's the deck's kind of stacked against you in that one. You know, I, I love innovation. And I, I think it's when you try to be innovative, sometimes you're going to win. And and we definitely won on the innovation with the hop shine and creating a cocktail that folks really appreciate. And, and I'm so grateful that, you know, our innovation sometimes leads to successes. But if you swing the bat enough, one of these times you're going to have a foul ball. And mm-hmm. this was one of those instances. And I'm just honestly grateful that we were able to have a reasonable conversation with the regulatory folks and, and walk away from it, you know, maybe smarter for it. And that's the extent of kind of the damage that came our way. Well, on a related subject, let's talk about the uh, SP 76, the revisions of the laws that go into effect in a little over a year. So I think some of those uh, that addresses some of the issues that you've had in the past, have you got any plans to make any changes to take advantage of the new regulations, change the way things are organized, anything like that? Yeah, I, I suspect you know that kind of having a Title IV update was something that we and myself took, spent a lot of time. I know, I know. Working towards trying to move. And, and I'm, I just want to make it clear, there are dozens of people that spent hundreds of hours. So I'm one of the small cogs in a very big wheel stacked with very talented, hardworking folks that really realize the need to have a modernization of the statutes that govern the alcohol industry. And what was really awesome was that very often these were bipartisan issues in which you had folks on both sides of the fence agreeing and, you know, also a 10, 11 year process trying to get the industry to agree with each other. So it was fatiguing and, and a, a very long process. And so for us, in all reality, we're not going to structurally change. Those benefits really are ones that we had managed to, to figure out a kind of a bypass for the prohibitive financial interest clause that was making it difficult for manufacturers to retail as well. And and once we kind of opened the door to that, there were a handful of other breweries that followed suit behind us. So from that perspective, I don't really believe that there's going to be a, a tremendous amount of structural change for Denali Brewing Company. And there are some liberalizations that are going to take place for our tasting room with expanded hours. And we're certainly grateful for that. So there's a lot of really good areas that I think we will be the beneficiary of. But I think the larger area that a lot of folks don't realize that um, the Title IV rewrite is going to be beneficial to the community is what happens to an underage person when they get a violation for drinking at a party. And prior to that, it was a misdemeanor. It would go on their record. And, you know, obviously 
the responsibility to not serve to minors is one that we should all take very, very seriously. But even with that said, the last thing you need to do is have a kid not be able to get into college because they were at a party and, and got caught drinking underage and now have a misdemeanor on their record. And so in terms of creating rules around the enforcement of alcohol, I really think that, you know, that our communities will actually benefit. And that was a, a really nice kind of bipartisan thing that was benefited our communities as a whole. And, you know, for me on a personal level, there's a lot in there about the management of fair trade practices. The federal government has a lot of rules that are there to ensure that the consumer has access to the market so that, you know, your favorite local brewery is, is not kind of excluded from having access to the market via really large producers with deep pockets that can come and incentivize and induce and create levels of exclusion. And, and so by the state of Alaska adopting a lot of these fair trade practices, it really kind of cauterizes and continues to create access for local small breweries to have uh, the ability to get into the market if they want without having the global giants kind of block their access. So for me, that was a really big thing that I was excited to see happening. And in general, it's, it's great. I, it's a lot of work and I can, I could probably spend another two hours discussing all the benefits of the modernization of title four, but at the risk of having that be another show in and of itself, I think I'll just leave it as I'm really glad that the regulation, the statutes were updated and the work isn't done. There's the, the whole second back half of Title IV, which is the regulations that also need to get modernized and updated. So good things have happened, but we still have work to do. Well, let me ask you one final question. What have you guys got coming out here in the next couple of months, new and exciting? Are you going to be releasing anything for the big January Fest or anything in the new year? Well, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I, we, we spent quite a bit of time discussing the distillery and I've spent personally a lot of my own personal time focusing on the distillery. It, you know, I've been doing the distilling myself and really trying to make that a big part of my uh, personal day-to-day work. So this Friday, we're about to release our 18th batch of whiskey. Kind of one of the things that's cool about our distillery and our whiskey program is every batch is a, a small batch and every batch is different than the previous. And so uh, different grain bills, different yeasts, um, different distillation methodologies, different proof. And so from every aspect, every batch has been different. So batch 18 is, is a rye-focused whiskey coming out at 96 proof and aged in American oak charred barrels. And um, so that's coming out this weekend. We just released uh, a barrel-aged gin as well. And just last month released our first rum, which is a two-year-aged rum coming at 96 proof Barbados-style and an agave spirit, which was aged in our former whiskey barrels uh, for six months. And um, kind of agave spirits similar to maybe a tequila, but it's being made in Alaska, so we can't 
call it tequila. So on the on the distillery front, that's kind of what's coming out new. And then we've had a on the beer side, we're about to release our it's an imperial stout made with chaga. It's um, probably the second time that we've made that, and we originally made that in collaboration with Nognio, the original craft brewery in Norway. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we'll be releasing that here hopefully soon. And then we have an imperial red ale that has been aged in bullet rye barrels. And that's also kind of a collaboration that we're doing with uh, bullet, the distillery and releasing that probably sometime in January as well. Well, cool. I'm looking forward to trying those. Well, hey, thanks for taking the time to talk with us, Sasan. I know you're you're busy there, but I uh, appreciate you uh, coming on and uh, bringing us up to date on all the developments. Yeah, well, we appreciate what you do, Bill, the education and the ability to have a platform to, to speak with all the good people you're in contact with is super valuable for us. So thanks for everything you do. We really appreciate it. Uh, my pleasure. Well, have a uh, happy new year, and maybe I'll see you in Anchorage in January, huh? I hope the same for you and yours, and yeah, hopefully we'll see you in January. Cheers. Cheers. This is Drinking on the Last Frontier, KDLL 91.9 FM, Kenai Soldatna. We'll be right back with our last segment. Are you looking for a K-12 alternative for your child? Join our innovative learning community at Connect Charter School. We offer statewide correspondence with homeschool support, in-person learning, or both with our blended learning program. We also offer career and technical training courses. Connect Charter School is Alaska's first K-12 charter school. Our correspondence school is open to all students in Alaska. Enroll today. Visit connectculturalschool.org for more information. Paid for by Connect Tribe. For our last segment today, I want to talk about the style of beer known as Porter. The origins of the style of beer known today as Porter date back to the early 1700s in Britain. It was the most popular style of beer in the English-speaking world until the 1870s. The production of Porter was one of the driving forces of the Industrial Revolution and is the earliest style of beer for which we have anything approaching accurate records, as it was the style being brewed when such critical scientific instruments as the thermometer and the hydrometer were invented. George Washington drank porter. His favorite was one brewed by Richard Hare of Philadelphia, and we still have letters from him extolling its virtues and ordering extra stocks after a fire at the brewery in 1790. It seems likely that the beer style received its name from its popularity with the city porters of London. These men transported goods back and forth across the city on their backs and were frequently in need of serious refreshment. The true origin of porter remains obscure. One legend attributes its creation to Ralph Harwood, the owner of Bell Brewhouse in Soreditch, East London in 1722. However, it seems more likely that the style evolved gradually from the earlier brown ales popular in London at the time, with no one individual being solely responsible. We do know that the original porters were a blend of different beers, some younger or fresher, and others that had been aged or staled in the terminology of the day. This aging took place initially in wooden casks, but these soon gave way to even larger wooden vessels or vats to enable the breweries to take advantage of economies of scale. 
With our current scientific knowledge, we can surmise that these wooden vats must have harbored both Lactobacillus and Britannomyces in the pores of the wood from which they were constructed. The microbes would have imparted some acidity or sourness to the porter as it aged, and this contribution would have become a flavor component in the final blended product. The scale of porter production expanded tremendously throughout the 18th and early 19th centuries. Porter brewers were quick to incorporate early aspects of the Industrial Revolution, such as the steam engine. The size of their vats continued to grow, with capacities in excess of 25,000 barrels becoming common. However, these sizes were straining the limits of the technology available, as was demonstrated in October 1814, when a vat at the Mew Brewery filled with some 27,750 barrels burst. The resulting tidal wave of beer demolished nearby buildings, drowning or crushing eight people to death. Porter was also popular outside Britain, spawning some variations which are today considered separate beer styles in their own right. A stronger version of porter, called stout porter, became very popular in Ireland when produced by a Dublin brewer named Arthur Guinness. Eventually, the second word was dropped, and this stout became a style in its own right, one which would eventually spawn its own family of substyles, such as Russian imperial, sweet, and dry stouts. English porter was also very popular in Russia, especially in the Baltic states, which were then under the rule of the czars. When British imports were eventually banned, local versions sprang up. These so-called Baltic porters actually used lager rather than ale yeasts used in Britain, but continue to be brewed to this very day and are another recognized porter variant. Despite the huge popularity of porter in its heyday, we have only a vague understanding of how it must have tasted. The best we can do is draw some reasonable inferences. The original porter, no doubt, was a deep shade of brown to mahogany in color made from a grist of the standard floor-malted brown malt of the day with some smoky notes from the kilning of the grain over open fires fueled by wood, straw, coal, or coke. After the invention of black patent malt in 1817, this brown malt was replaced by a combination of pale malt and black patent, as the new scientific instrumentation had demonstrated that this was a more efficient process. Porters appear to have been highly hopped, although the initial bitterness would have been mellowed over the months of aging. And, of course, the presence of Lactobacillus and Britannomyces would have been responsible for the admiring mentions that have come down to us of the stale flavors of well-regarded porters from the 1800s. However, after a century and a half of popularity, tastes began to change, especially after the introduction of Pilsner-style lagers in the mid-19th century. In Britain, pale ales and bitters became the beers of choice, with porter entering a long, slow decline from about 1870 on. By the late 1950s, a few porters were still being brewed in London, but the style was clearly headed for oblivion. However, all that changed in 1975 when Fritz Maytag of Anchor Brewing in San Francisco created his Anchor Porter. Still brewed to this day, this beer served as an inspiration to the new breed of American craft brewers who would begin brewing in the 1980s. Included among them were Jeff and Marcy Larson of Alaskan Brewing Company. 
Opening for business in 1986, by 1988, they would be producing their Alaskan Smoked Porter, the beer which has won more medals than any other at the Great American Beer Festival. These new Americanized porters tended to be stronger than their English cousins with more hop bitterness from using Pacific Northwest hop varieties. After a century of decline, porter was on the upswing again. The typical craft brewed porter of today will be medium brown to very dark brown, often with ruby-like highlights and a full tan-colored head. The aroma will have a medium light to medium strong dark malt presence, often with a lightly burnt character, suggesting coffee or dark chocolate. On the palate, the flavor profile is similar to the aroma, with dark malt, coffee, and chocolate notes predominant. Alcohol by volume is typically 4.8 to 6.5%, though stronger versions exist as well. If you are looking to taste locally produced porters, Cassock's Brewery regularly offers its Moose Point Porter, while Kenai River Brewing offers its Pothole Porter on occasion. St. Elias Brewing frequently has a porter on offer. Various brews include its popular Fair Trade Coffee Porter, its Vanilla Bean Porter, Baltic Porter, Colonial Porter, and H&H East India Porter. Cooper Landing Brewing has its Porcupine Island Porter, which is also available with blackberries added to it. While it no longer dominates the brewing scene, porter remains one of the staple styles of American craft brewing. That wraps up this month's show, as well as another year. I want to thank you all for your support of this show and wish you all a very happy, healthy, and successful 2023. For our final quote of 2022, I'd like to reference an ancient Egyptian proverb. The mouth of a perfectly happy man is filled with beer. May you all be perfectly happy in the new year. Cheers. Hi, this is Chef Steve Horn inviting you to join me for the Blues Cafe Monday nights from 7 to 9 p.m. on KDLL 91.9 FM. New music, old music, my favorites, your favorites, and any music that is good for the body, mind, and soul. Make your reservations to join me on Monday evenings at the Blues Cafe. Thank you. <laughs>